0: The history of Boston is something that I love. There isn't a day that goes by that I don't read about something. And I've taught at the Urban College of Boston, which is a two-year preparatory school primarily for women getting an early childhood education. In some ways, it's something that I love to do. And though many of them tell me that they're taking this humanities course because, quote, they love history, unquote, I realize it's actually the three points that they need for their humanities degree. History should be fun, and in a lot of ways this book has something in a lot of ways that not only I hope you will have fun, but be assured I had a lot of fun. Boston has a lot of losts, and there are things that are very familiar to each one of us. I give you a series here, The Old Feather Store. You may not realize, but the building was actually adjacent to Faneuil Hall, seen on the right-hand side. Built in 1680, it was demolished in 1860. Already it had become antiquarian. But when it was demolished, in a lot of ways, it was built for the rising aspect of the commercial base of that area. But it was demolished because of the street widening. We also saw Boylston Hall, designed by Bullfinch at the corner of Washington and uh, Boylston Street. A building built in 1810, it was an important feature that had a market on the first floor. Directly above was Boylston Hall. It was used for a variety of purposes, among them the practicing of the Handel and Haydn. But when it was demolished in 1888, it was actually replaced by a much larger, grander building. We'd also see in some ways what was to become transportation Park Square with the Boston and Providence Depot. And when this was constructed, it connected Boston and Providence. It was a major railroad. And the building itself, though it was actually abandoned in 1910, would later be replaced in 1927 with the Statler building. We realized in some ways that eventually even the Park Square Hotel would actually be here. But in a lot of ways, we begin to realize that each one of these buildings, including the Prison Point Bridge, would actually be something that people realize are part of our history. The prison here in Carlstown was actually adjacent to what was basically the bridge that I just mentioned, Prison Point Bridge. We hear it every morning when we hear about the traffic tie-ups in Boston. But we have to realize in some ways that this was a major feature, and in the 1850s, the thousands of prisoners were actually kept here until the 1960s when it was demolished and people moved to both Walpole and Concord. But each of these buildings, in some ways, is an important way to realize that even places like the Boston Opera House were in a major feature. This building, which was on Huntington Avenue, just adjacent to what is today's Symphony Hall, is a great example of not only a place that we see culture in Boston, but Wheelwright and Haven created a magnificent structure. We also see, as sometimes if you're as old as I am, the old registry of motor vehicles when it was on Nashua Street. Each of these concepts, whether it's a public building, a private building, a hall, or in some ways even this, blimstroms, a place of entertainment in South Boston, were part of our lives, whether it was us, our parents, or our grandparents. Photography is something that actually preserves the memory, but in a lot of ways these memories go the gamut. The elevated railway which connected Sullivan Station, seen here at the turn of the 20th century with Dudley Station in Roxbury, was a major feature. Transportation transformed the city, and with ease of transportation, people could move further out from the core city. But it wasn't just that, there were a couple of houses. Among my favorites was this, Bromley, which was the Heath family home in what is today Jamaica Plain. When it was demolished in the 1940s, it made way for the Bromley Heath housing development, but the Heaths would live here for close to two centuries in great splendor. But it wasn't just here, but even this, which was designed by Edwin Lewis in Dorchester. Frank Young, a very important man in the kerosene trade in South Boston, had Edwin Lewis, a very well-known architect, design his family home at the crest of Ashmont Street in Dorchester. In a lot of ways, this is a book that actually chronicles Boston. And in ways, we realize in some aspects, Boston in the 19th century would see tremendous changes. Here in a painting in the collection of the Massachusetts Historical Society from 1801, we see the old state house at the head of what was then State Street, formerly King Street before the Revolution. In a lot of ways, Boston would change from what was once a provincial town To an urbane city in 1822, and it was primarily due to this man, Charles Bullfinch. Bullfinch had been graduated from Harvard, and following his graduation, he took the grand tour of Europe. When he returned to Boston as a gentleman's architect, he began to transform the city, not just architecturally, but even topographically. And in the 19th century, he had to realize that Boston, which was an 800-acre peninsula projecting from Roxbury with what was called the Neck, would actually be an area that would be infilled, not just in the Dock Square area, but the cutting down of Beacon Hill to create the flat of Beacon Hill. In a lot of ways, this was a man who transformed the city. Bullfinch's great claim to fame was the Tontine Crescent and seen here in a photograph of about 1850, it was among the most fashionable places to reside in Boston. When it was started in the 1790s, this was supposed to be a connected grouping of row houses. It was the first row houses in all of New England. Bullfinch was interpreting the Bath Crescent, and in the very center of what were 16 row houses, he had a pavilion. And the pavilion on the second floor had the Library Society, which would eventually merge with the Boston Athenaeum. And the third floor was the headquarters of the Massachusetts Historical Society. On the ground floor was an archway that led through to Summer Street. And today, that is perpetuated in the name of Arch Street. Well, Bullfinch in a lot of ways was someone who looked at these buildings as an important feature. But the Tontine Crescent that had among the wealthiest and most fashionable Bostonians in the early 19th century would also have not just the Federal Street Theater, but it would also have what was the first place of worship for Roman Catholics in Boston. Initially, the church of the Holy Cross and later the cathedral, this was an important feature to realize that in the 19th century, it wasn't just architecture and topography that was changing, but it was the aspect of embracing new people living in the city. In some ways, Bullfinch would look at the Hancock House that stood on what is today the crest of Beacon Hill. Since 1737, the Hancock family had lived in great splendor, one of the only houses on what was then the farm of Beacon Hill. But the building itself would later be demolished in 1863 and would actually lead many Bostonians to seek the preservation of historical landmarks. But the idea was Bullfinch would transform this area into what became a federal neighborhood And in some ways, looking from the steps of the Massachusetts State House, we see on the corner the Amory Tickner House, and of course the Union Club, but a grouping of eight row houses that were built on Park Street. The whole concept of Bullfinch is incredible, and from 1793 until he left in 1819 to actually complete the capitol in Washington, D.C. Bullfinch transformed Boston, and in some ways, these buildings are testimony to the great aspect of neoclassicism. But one of the things Bullfinch also did, as I mentioned, was topographical changes, and though he did not create Pemberton Square, seen here in a photograph of the 1860s, his concept of what basically became Lewisburg Square and Pemberton Square would be the prototype of the squares of the End of Boston in the 19th century. In this instance, Bullfinch himself was someone who interpreted neoclassicism in Europe and brought it to Boston and interpreted it here as federal architecture. In a lot of ways, it wasn't just Bullfinch, but in the 1840s and 50s, Boston's downtown district, which had once been a great place of fashionable resort, had now begun to change. Trinity Church, an old Episcopal church that was on Summer Street, now the site of what is the Filene's Department Store, was a place that was built in some ways for a neighborhood church. But by the 1850s, most of this neighborhood had begun to turn to commercialism. And in a lot of ways, the downtown district would even see this building, designed by Gridley J. Fox Bryant, on the site of the old Tontine Crescent. Demolished in 1858, Bullfinch's Crescent was no longer a fashionable place of resort. And Bryant built, in this instance, granite facaded commercial structures with shops on the ground floor and offices above. It transformed the entire downtown district. But surprisingly, all of it was swept away in the Great Boston Fire of 1872. The whole concept here was that in some ways, the downtown district was something that was rebuilt, thanks to George Clough, who was to become the first city architect of the city of Boston. Beginning in 1873, he transformed the Burnt District, and seen here, which was called Church Green, at the junction of Bedford and Summer Streets, into what were five- and six-story commercial blocks, all built of stone or brick, with party walls that had firewalls. In some ways, Clough was someone who actually transformed the city and ensured that its growth was something that would preserve not just the buildings, but protect the public. In some ways, Boston, seen here in the period of the 1850s, had seen tremendous changes already. Boston, as I mentioned, when it was settled in 1630 by Puritans seeking religious freedom, was a place that was of great tranquility. 800 acres, connected to the mainland, surrounded on all sides by the ocean. But by the 1850s, the South End had already been infilled, and it was perceived that the Back Bay would be created as it was beginning in 1859. And in this instance, looking from the dome of the Massachusetts State House, we realized that the Back Bay was literally that. It was a bay of water. The Mill Dam on the right-hand side, which was known as Beacon Street, had already dammed the Charles River, and whereas the Back Bay had been marshland, it created repugnant smells that was called a noxious effluvia that had to be actually controlled because of course it bred mosquitoes and of course malaria. In the 1850s, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts looked at this as something that could be developed. But it wouldn't be just developed, it would be a residential neighborhood as well as an institutional neighborhood. And seen here on Commonwealth Avenue at the junction of Dartmouth Street, The Back Bay, beginning in 1859 and continuing until about 1888, when most of the Back Bay was filled, as a neighborhood that was created from man-made land. The soil was brought in by railroad from Needham, Massachusetts. It was only 12 miles, but it ran 24 hours a day, six days a week, and it was run by 75 men under the auspices of John Souther, who was commissioned by the Commonwealth to fill the Back Bay. Here, buildings were constructed, and it became not just a polite neighborhood, but one of architectural cohesion. In some ways, it was the first aspect of zoning. But in a lot of ways, when we look at the Back Bay, and here at what is Arlington Street at the junction of Boylston, we realize that it wasn't just Boston families that were moving to this new neighborhood, even their places of worship were moving there. On the far left-hand side is the Arlington Street Church. Previously, it was the Federal Street Church when it was on Federal Street in downtown Boston. And when it moved to the Back Bay in 1859, they renamed themselves the Arlington Street Church. The whole concept of the Back Bay was something that was not just grand, but it was a planned neighborhood. And in a lot of ways, as we see here, some of the institutions that would actually arise in the Back Bay would include the Natural History Museum. If you're as old as I am, it was Barnwood Teller. Later it was Louis, and of course now it's Restoration Hardware. But when this was built and designed by William Gibbons Preston, it was an important feature because you could go there to see, of course, the skeletons of whales, all sorts of glacial deposits, dinosaur eggs, and even a balustrade that had bears carved out of black walnut. It was an important feature, but eventually it would move to Cambridge, and today it survives as the Science Museum. But adjacent to it, it was envisioned that this would be the first location of what would to become the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. MIT would actually build their Rogers Building on Boylston Street between Clarendon and Berkeley Street. Preston was one of the foremost architects of the mid-19th century. He was not the only one. But in a lot of ways, Rogers Hall, as this was called, was an important feature because it was named for the first president of what was called Tech. William Barton Rogers had come from Philadelphia to assume the presidency of this new school. This was not classical education. MIT offered education for young men in this instance for not just engineering, electrical work, but the first school of architecture in the United States. Previous to this time, most architects, almost all of which were men previous to 1870, had studied at the Ecole de Beaux-Arts in Paris. But now, William Roach Ware would actually train two generations of American architects. And it was an important feature, for this building would survive until 1937, though the campus was actually moved to Cambridge in 1916. Other buildings included the Boston Public Library. And this building, designed by Charles Kirby, completed in 1858, was on Boylston Street across from the Boston Common. The building itself was only two stories in height. It was a very impressive building built of brownstone, but it was something in a lot of ways that was an important feature, because prior to its construction, the only libraries in Boston were the Boston Library Society that was on Federal Street and the Boston Athenaeum. The public library was open to the public, and as it said above its door, it was free to all. And as one entered into this building, they entered into Bates Hall. Bates Hall, thanks to Kirby's design, was monumental. And as you see, these enormous Corinthian columns created in this aspect three tiers of what were books donated by prominent Bostonians. Joshua Bates, who was a man who was a partner with Baring Brothers in London, had been born and raised in Stoughton, Massachusetts, but eventually he saw to it that eventually he donated over $100,000 in the mid-19th century. It was a tremendous sum. It sounds like nothing today, but the concept was, in 1860, a gentleman could expect $2,000 a year, so it was a tremendous sum, and he created something that was available to every Bostonian we'd also see the Museum of Fine Arts, which was built, as we would know, in Copley Square. But when this was designed by Sturgis and Brigham, the Museum of Fine Arts was something that extolled the aspect Bostonians now had culture. The museum was a place for a quarter where adults and children could go to actually see the wonders of the day. And the building itself, as you can see, had Ruskinian Gothic detailing. It originally was only half the size, as you see, of the facade, but it would eventually increase four times. Surprising thing was, as we see here in a print of about 1892, Bostonians descended upon the Museum of Fine Arts in an area that was called Art Square until 1888, when it was renamed in honor of John Singleton Copley. But the museum was a place that didn't have very much original art. They had plaster castings of Greco-Roman antiquities, and in some ways it would only be in the 1870s and 1880s that Bostonians could be induced to give money to acquire art. In that instance, much of it was European. But the surprising thing was, many Bostonians would endow funds, including Harvey Parker, a man who actually had the Parker House Hotel, as well as Henry Pierce, who was the president of the Baker Chocolate Company. And though Parker only gave $100,000 to acquire art, Henry Pierce gave a million dollars. These Bostonians saw this as a place where all people, of all walks of life, could enjoy art and in some ways it was an important feature. But adjacent to that was the Coliseum, granted another form of entertainment. This building is now on the site of Copley Place. Originally built after the Civil War, it was thought that music could heal the wounds of the Union after the Civil War. And during this period of time, many Boston businessmen would put up money to create a musical festival, among them Eben Jordan of Jordan Marsh and Company. This building was cavernous, called a shed, that could actually seat 100,000 people. And seen here on the interior, it was a place where musical performances were done evenings and weekends for over a two year period. One of the things they performed was the anvil chorus, where a 100 volunteer firefighters of the Boston area were invited to ring their hammers on their anvils. I can imagine the noise but I can also imagine how many people participated, and seen here, though the audience is not in attendance, we began to realize in some ways what this building represented. There were also places in the neighborhoods, and one of the things that I tried in a very big way was to include almost every neighborhood of the city of Boston. And though many people talk about the history of Boston, many people dwell on the downtown, Beacon Hill, Back Bay, In some ways, South Boston, Dorchester, Hyde Park, Roxbury, Charlestown, Brighton, are all parts of the city, but they're neighborhoods. And in some ways in this book, this of South Boston was an important feature, I thought. This was the old Mount Washington Hotel. It was built at the crest of what was actually East Broadway. It was a building that had over 100 suites, all four sides of which overlooked the ocean. And when it was constructed, it was thought that South Boston, which originally was a part of Dorchester and was later annexed to Boston in 1804, would be the new fashionable place of resort. It would take close to 150 years for that to happen. But in this instance, South Boston was a place that we saw being developed with commercial aspects on the edges of the ocean. But the building itself failed as a hotel, and eventually it became the Perkins School for the Blind. And the building itself, with its panoramic views of the ocean as well as from the cupola at the top, was a place where the blind were educated. And seen here, Dr. Howe was someone who not only used the braille technique, but would be so successful that the Perkins would eventually leave this building in 1912 to move to a larger campus on the edge of Watertown. Now the concept here was that this was an institution that had once started in the downtown section. Perkins was a very wealthy man, and Perkins, who actually is behind the screen, <laughs> or his portrait is, is someone who's associated with the Athenaeum because he gave his house on Pearl Street to actually help both organizations. And we saw in some ways that this was an important feature. but it was also the fact Boston had many hotels. And though the Mount Washington Hotel dated from the 1830s and it was in South Boston, the downtown district had some very important hotels and this was the Tremont House. The Tremont House was designed by Isaiah Rogers at the corner of Tremont and Beacon Street. You can see on the left-hand side the adjacent granary burying ground. When this was constructed, this was really considered to be the first luxury hotel in Boston. It was the only hotel that you could stay in that you didn't have to share your room with someone who had arrived after you. It had locks on the door, and it had running water. It also provided free soap. And in the 19th century, it was something that even had private dining rooms that provided food 12 hours out of the day. But we realized in some ways that many of these hotels would go the gamut, including the Revere House, which was at Bowdoin Square. Originally, this was the home of Kirk Boot. Boot was the owner of the Boot Mills. Lowell and Lawrence provided fabrics. But the building was eventually increased in size and scale by William Washburn to become what was almost a hundred rooms of what was run by Perrin Stevens, a very well-known hotel proprietor. So it goes the gamut. The Mount Washington, the uh, Tremont House, the Revere House, and of course, even the Parker House. The Parker House still survives, but this building, which had replaced an earlier building, showed that Harvey Parker was someone to reckon with. Parker had created in some ways what was said to be the finest table in Victorian Boston. It was also a strategic location at the corner of Tremont and School Street, and when this was built, In many ways, it had not just comfortable rooms and suites, but it also had, in some ways, something that he wanted, which was the finest cuisine in the city. And Harvey Parker, seen here in an etching of about 1872, was someone who not only provided a wonderful table for diners, but also in some ways would create the Parker House roll and the Boston cream pie. And though the hotel survives today in a much different form, and of course a much grander and larger hotel, his name is something that has become part of Boston's history. There was also the Hotel Brunswick, which was at the corner of what is today Boylston and Clarendon Street, and with this was designed by Sturgis and Brigham and completed in 1874 It was not just a fashionable hotel, which had places such as the Venetian Room, which was with Murano chandeliers from Venice, but it was a place that had, in some ways, the best concept of location. It was within walking distance of the public garden, and of course, Art Square, which became Copley Square. By the 1950s, though this building had once been a very fashionable hotel, had now become graduate student housing for Harvard University. Harvard bought this and would rent out three room studios to basically all of their married graduates and it would survive until it was demolished in 1957. We also realized it wasn't just what I call transient hotels, somewhere you would actually stay for a set period of time, but they were residential hotels. And the Hotel Pelham, seen here at the corner of what is today Boylston and Tremont Street, was in this instance the first French flat hotel in Boston. The building when it was completed was not just fashionable, but you lived on one floor. I realize the back bay in the 19th century showed that many families opted for living in five or six-story row houses. This was a building where not only you could live comfortably, but there was a dining room on the first floor, a library, and your servants could live in the attic. Very convenient. But the building itself was adjacent to Tremont Street, and only 12 years after it was completed, it had to be moved 18 feet to the west. And during that period, Nathaniel Bradley, a very well-known Boston architect, and basically an engineering feat, moved it over a period of 12 hours, inch by inch, and the building survived until it was demolished in 1916. And today, of course, this area is the little building. We also saw the Warren, which was in Roxbury at the junction of what is today Warren Street on the left and St. James Street on the right. And this was a building that had 60 apartments for many families. These were typical of the Victorian houses that were being built in the period of 1860 to 1900 that were just not, in some ways, a residence. These were apartments that many people looked at as something that you might live when you were recently married or nearly dead. (laughs) And the concept here was, with hotels having, in this instance, apartments but also restaurants and services on the ground floor, it was convenient and it was only a short distance from Dudley Street Station. We also see in some ways the elevated railway, as I mentioned earlier. This is Dudley Street Station. When it was completed at the turn of the 20th century, it revolutionized Boston's transportation. In the 19th century, we saw, of course, streetcars that would actually crisscross the city, allowing you to actually go from one place to the other. Eventually, there were so many of them, the traffic tie-ups were incredible, especially in the downtown district. The elevated railway was something that could actually meet a timeline. And if you actually elevated the railroad bed above the street, there was no impeding of the train moving. And in this way, Dudley Street Station to downtown Boston was 12 minutes. It was convenient, it was safe, and it was also a great investment. And many Bostonians looked at it as a great place to actually trans. But there's also the fact it was very polite. And of course, the MBTA always admonished their patrons, no spitting please. <laughs> Something that the politeness has been lost in our day and age. <laughs> We also saw transportation that included the ferries from Boston to East Boston. And beginning in the 1830s, a man by the name of William Sumner, for whom the Sumner Tunnel is named, created in some ways a new neighborhood. He inherited much of Nautil's Island through his mother's family and eventually developed it, both as a residential neighborhood as well as a commercial one along the ocean. Here, many ferries would connect Bostonians to East Boston, and for a penny, one could take a 10-minute ride across the Atlantic Ocean. And in this way, it was something that was important because it would eventually lead to the narrow gauge railroad. The ferries, and there were three different lines that would actually run in the 19th and early 20th century, brought people, not just residents that lived there, but also many Bostonians going to Revere Beach on the weekends, and here a group of people on this ferry would eventually meet the narrow gauge or what is today called the Blue Line that would eventually take them on to Revere Beach, which was a grand afternoon. We also saw transportation in East Boston including what was called the East Boston Airport. And beginning in 1927, we saw one landing field actually laid out where small biplanes would actually land. This was the original administration building, which I love because it has a small model of a biplane on top of the building. But we would eventually see these biplanes as something that were used for passenger transportation And of course, not only Amelia Earhart, but Charles Lindbergh would land at East Boston Airport. And by 1945, it was renamed Logan Airport. Logan was an interesting character. He was a colonel during the Spanish-American War, and he would later become a Chief Justice of the South Boston Municipal Court. I've always wondered, who did he know to get the name Logan International Airport? But the instance was, it is something that each one of us know as transportation. And seen here, maybe you're as old as I am and you can remember actually alighting from the planes on the tarmac rather than taking it directly to the landing station. We also saw entertainment. And entertainment in Los Boston is something that's a lot of fun. Seen here on Washington Street in the downtown district, we realized that this was the place, not just for plays and movies, but in this way, all sorts of different things that lit up in the evening and gave great color. In a lot of ways, Boston in the period of the late 19th and early 20th century was a place to go. It was a destination, and Bostonians looked at the downtown district as a place that many people wanted to go. But seen here, It included all sorts of things, including Braves Field. Now, Braves Field was an important feature. It replaced the old Alston Golf Club, if you can imagine a golf club in Alston. It was on what is today Columbia Road, uh, Columbia Road, Commonwealth Avenue, but the building itself was an important feature because Boston had two baseball teams at that time. So this was something at what was basically not only enjoyable, but it was a destination with thousands of people on the weekends taking the trolley from downtown Boston. There was also the Head House in South Boston, a building that was designed by Edmund March Wheelwright, who at the time was the city architect for the city of Boston. He built this in 1894, it was a copy of a building that was built for the Columbian Exhibition in Chicago. And the idea was that this was a place that not only you could have dinner or lunch or ice cream, but it had bathing uh, buildings in the back. It was a place in South Boston's Marine Park that was developed at the latter part of the 19th century as an attraction. The head house, as you see here, was a Germanic building and Wheelwright, who was a partner of uh, Wheelwright and Haven, give you an example. He designed not just Horticultural Hall, but also the Opera House created a fanciful structure in an area that now was in an area that people actually would go bathing. The building was an important feature, but Marine Park also included, as we would see here, the original Boston Aquarium. And the aquarium, in some ways, was an important feature. Looking at the building, you had to realize it was designed by William Downs Austin, A very well-known architect, Stickney and Austin was his firm, but he would design a series of buildings around the city of Boston. The building was intriguing. It was a place that brought not just enjoyment to adults, but to young children, and we see here in some ways it was a popular place for every school to actually go for their bus trip. I wanted to read a poem, and this was written by Robert Lowell, the great poet. It said that the old South Boston Aquarium stands in a Sahara of snow now. Its broken windows are boarded. the bronze weather vane cod has lost half its scales. The airy tanks are dry. Once my hand crawled like a snail on the glass, my hand tingled to burst the bubbles, drifting from the noses of cowed compliant fish. My hand draws back, I often still sigh, for the dark downward and vegetating kingdom of the fish and reptile. The aquarium is gone, everywhere giant fin cars, forward like fish. A savage civility slides by on grease. The aquarium was closed in 1954 and it wouldn't be demolished until 1961. And of course today, we have an aquarium in downtown Boston, but there was a charm to this building that in some instances we realized evaded many Bostonians when it was demolished. We'd also see the Elephant House at Franklin Park. Franklin Park Zoo was a great resort in the early 20th century, but the Elephant House was a beautiful structure. It was also designed by William Downs Austin. It was completed in 1912, and of course, if you look at the building above the front entrance, it was a three-dimensional elephant head and there were four of them, one on each of the four sides. It wasn't just a place that one went to see African and Indian elephants, but if you were lucky enough, you'd see Wadi, the elephant, actually having his manicure once a month. In a lot of ways, Lost Boston is something that maybe we've lost, but we can remember. I, too, remember, of course, the building, but the concept was, by the early 1970s, with lack of maintenance, it was demolished. In some ways, entertainment also included the Reedville Trotting Park. And Reedville, which is a neighborhood of Hyde Park, you have to realize that Hyde Park was an independent town until 1912 when it was annexed to Boston, that this was a trotting park where men would race their horses on one-seated sulkies. The building, as you can see here, was a structure that had a triumphal arch, but as you entered, it had not only grandstands, but seating for close to 10,000 people. People would take the train from downtown Boston, and that was the Boston and Providence, and there was a Reedville Depot, and here they would watch men race their horses. During the early part of the 20th century, there were a series of driving clubs in and around Boston. There wasn't just Reedville, but there was Mystic Park in Medford, and the Dorchester Gentlemen's Driving Club, which my own grandfather belonged and raced in these races. It was something that became popular. But by the 1930s, the horses were replaced by automobiles, and the Reedville Trotting Park became the Reedville Race Track. <laughs> And it would survive until the 1950s and eventually we saw it as the stop and shop warehouse. And of course, Scully Square. Scully Square in a lot of ways is something that has gone down in history as a place that was always something doing. I can vaguely remember this when my maternal grandfather would take me on his walks of downtown Boston. I can only remember really the dust as the area was completely obliterated in the late 50s and early 60s. But Scully Square had always been a junction named for William Scully, a well-known Bostonian. But it was a place in some ways that had not only places of entertainment, but places that were quite salacious. One of them was the old Howard. (laughs) And the old Howard had started off in life as a place of worship, a different kind of worship. In that instance, in the 1840s, it was designed by Isaiah Rogers, the same architect as the Tremont House Hotel, and it was a place where the Millerites worshipped. Well, the Reverend William Miller was someone who had a flock of hundreds of congregants who actually ascribed to his idea that the world would end in 1847. And they waited for the day when they would ascend into heaven, hopefully. As they sold all of their earthly possessions, their property, their real estate, and distributed what cash they had, they waited in the church. They waited in the church. (laughs) They waited in the church. And after two days, they began to drift away, and eventually the Millery Church was no more. It became the old Howard, and the old Howard in that period was a place of entertainment from everything from Hamlet and mini operettas as well as dancing dogs and all sorts of different things that people could enjoy. But in a lot of ways, the old Howard was a place in the 20th century that titillated as well as entertained. And we would go the gamut from Sally Rand, and you have to admit it's quite an elegant picture of not only a woman who would entertain the young men, mostly from Harvard and visiting sailors, but also the more comely <coughs> and curious. In a lot of ways, these were women that actually entertained hundreds of people. But the surprising thing was, though, of course, Anne Curio would make John Fitzgerald Kennedy an honorary member of her fan, he made her an honorary member of the 1937 class at Harvard. (laughs) In some ways, it was an important feature. And looking here in the 1950s, of course, the old Howard was a place, not just of resort, but every man who went was entertained, if not titillated. It was closed by the New England Watch and Ward Society. We can thank them for a lot of things. And it laid vacant for many years. And in 1961, it burnt, as thousands of men actually lamented its loss. This was actually a ditty written by a man named Frank Hatch. It said, Boston has two Athenaeums, both on Beacon Hill. One is for scholars with books by the score, the other for lads who seek life in the roar. The Boston Athenaeum's lights are bright, but the Howard Athenaeum's locked up tight. Some purist got himself a jurist and slapped a padlock on the door. Some coward closed the old Howard. (laughs) And when in 1961 it ceased to exist, it still come down to us in our memories. In a lot of ways, looking at it, it also included such things as even when Boston Common was dredged up as a victory garden during World War II. And if you look at this gentleman driving a horse with a plow, he's extremely well dressed. (laughs) But Boston Common saw in that instance many people participating in the war effort and growing vegetables, herbs, and even flowers during this 1941 to 1945 period was an important feature. It supplemented, of course, vegetables. But we also saw the Massachusetts State House participating in the World War II effort. You're all too young to remember, but there was a scrap drive for metal in the 1940s. Leverett Saltonstall, who served as the governor of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, decided to participate. He didn't decide to just collect tin cans and scrap metal. He gave away the fences that surrounded the Massachusetts State House. And during the period of 1941, with a blowtorch in one hand and goggles in the other, he started the demolition of the fences. Eventually, it included all of the fences around the Boston Common, as well as the Public Garden. And almost every cemetery lost their family lot fences as well. But it was an important feature that made people feel welcome. Today. When we think of Lost Boston, we have to realize that it truly, in some ways, is not always lost. We can remember it in photographs. If you look at this photograph on the left-hand side, it's now Boston City Hall Plaza. In the very center is the Sears Building, where the steaming tea kettle still survives. It's a great example, and the photograph only dates to the turn of the 1960s, but we remember. We might even see in this way The Province House Stairs. Maybe you've gone to Cafe Malev. This is a painting that hangs in our study in Boston. It's a painting that actually shows the stairs to what was once the seat of the provincial governor of of what was then the province of Massachusetts. Stairs survive, but the building is gone. Or the Paul Revere House. In the 19th century, Paul Revere probably would never have recognized it. But by 1900, it was a place that was not only the Goduti Cigar Factory, but it was the Banca Italiana, where one could actually trade or invest in the Italian language. The bank was an important feature. It made everyone realize that saving was a thrifty and profitable thing to do. But we also had the Old South Meeting House, saved by Mary Hemingway, a very wealthy Boston woman who put up $100,000 to save this from demolition. Its congregation had already built a new place of worship in Boston's Back Bay. And today, New Old South Church is still a thriving congregation. But this building had been saved, not as a place of worship, but as a museum of Boston's colonial past. When we think in some ways, even the Globe Corner Bookstore, and I can remember it when it was a pizza parlor in the early 1960s, we realize in some ways each one of them survived, maybe remarkably, but in some ways thanks to us. Whether we actually owned the building or we were part of a preservation movement to preserve them, in some ways it was something that saved. In the 1980s, when I was a member of the Boston Preservation Alliance, we actually met to actually raise our glasses to the saving of the Sitgo sign. Many people don't think neon signs are something that are worth preservation, but in this instance, it's still part of our streetscape. In the evening, we actually remember this building in some ways a sign or a structure. But Lost Boston is much more. Lost Boston, in a lot of ways, is something that is each one of ours' history, whether our family has been here for generations or we've basically just moved to Boston and claimed it as our own. Lost Boston is a place that we can remember, in some ways, in photographic format, not only places of worship, institutions, museums, hotels, even the Victory Garden. It's something, in some ways, that's part of Boston's evolution and in some ways its preservation past. Thank you, I hope you enjoyed it.